Hey guys, my name is Alex, and this is the Thousand Movie Project Podcast, coming straight from Miami, where, same as with our last episode, it is still raining. The rain started on Thursday, just about, and now, on Tuesday, it's keeping on strong with occasional cuts of sunlight and searing summer heat, and there's a wetness in the air that keeps everyone nice and angry. I went last night to Presidente Supermarket, and I got some chicken cutlets, some dog food, a bottle of Sutter House Merlot for $5.99, and a can of chickpeas, because my every evening's cuisine has taken a step up. Every night that I get home from work, I take mango for a quick walk, then I come back up and boil some water, and I throw a cup of brown rice in there, then I soak a chicken cutlet in a Tupperware full of red wine, and then, as the rice is nearly done, I throw the cutlet into the pan and sear that shit to perfection, dusting it with adobo and chili and chipotle powder, a bit of pepper, too, if I can take it, and a nice little glaze of hot sauce, and then I mush in some chickpeas and black beans, and then I mix everything together into a steaming pile, and I pour myself a tall glass of that same wine in which this chicken just sat soaking, and I take my position on the living room couch and boot up my roommate's smart TV, and I catch up on my YouTube. Which, for the most part, lately means watching videos from Steve Donahue, the Boston-based book critic and my very favorite YouTube personality by a mile, uh, as well as the latest content from Grace Randolph, who is a movie critic and journalist about whom you're about to hear quite a lot in the second half of the show. This podcast is named after a Thousand Movie Project, which is my effort to watch in chronological order all of the movies listed in Stephen J. Schneider's book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, and to write a response piece to each one, which are then posted on the website, thousandmovieproject.com. And for a while, back in the beginning, this podcast was all about movies. But I would hear from people that those are the episodes where they would tend to skip along, and I get it. It's not exactly a hoot to hear someone get critical about a movie you haven't seen, let alone a movie you've maybe never even heard of. Also, I noticed that after a a breakup in October, I started making the project's website into a kind of diary and posting almost every day with something intimate about dating or my insecurities about work or family, just, just a bunch of personal shit. And the site's analytics show me every single day that those diary posts are the most visited ones, the most commented upon, the most liked. Now, does it make me less interested in writing about movies? Of course not. But it does make me mindful about what people want to read and what they want to listen to. So, in the latter half of today's show, when I talk about the movie critic and journalist Grace Randolph, I just want to let you know right now off the bat that even if you haven't heard of her or the LA Beast or Gary Vaynerchuk or any of the other YouTube personalities mentioned, I don't think you're going to get lost. I'm using them as sort of a vehicle to address larger things about creating content and about perseverance and, you know, through through the anonymity that you're going to have to languish through if you're trying to make a name for yourself online. It's about, I guess, it's about, I guess, trying to be the best that you can be. It's pretty rah-rah. But first, I wanted to talk again about Cuban sandwiches. Stop so listening to this. Se bella giusatore. Wait, is it too close or no? Se bella giusatore, genotre sacca fore. Oh, I messed up. Se bella giusatore, genotre socca fore, genotre si cavore, gelatula ti la tua. Do you like green eggs and ham? I do not like them, Sam. I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like green. 
Uh, I forgot. Do you like green eggs and ham? I do not like them, Sam. I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not, Sam. I am. Works. <laughs> 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 All right, perfect. Don't hug me. I'm sweaty. I said in a podcast from a couple weeks ago during a segment about Cuban sandwiches that this was going to be the week where I straighten up and I crack down on the bad eating and the heavy drinking, and I think I did cut back over the course of the week. The fact that you find me now writing this exactly seven days later at the counter of yet another 8th Street Diner with yet another Cuban sandwich is the kind of thing that if I were to apologize for it, I would just be apologizing all the time, so let me not bother. I'm constantly overstating my own discipline to myself. I tell myself that I'm not going to eat a Cuban sandwich this week, and, and I'll believe it, because it, it just makes sense. How hard could it be to not walk a mile to a diner and spend money on a sandwich? And yet, here I am. Mark Twain said about quitting smoking that it's, it's the easiest thing in the world. He does it every day. But enough about the sandwich itself. You're joining me today at a little yellow venue called Arahi's Bakery No. 2 on Southwest 8th Street and 9th Avenue. It's located exactly two blocks west of Arahi's Bakery No. 1. If I had to guess as to why Arahi's Bakery No. 1 and No. 2 are located so close to each other, I would say that it's because between the hours of 5.30 a.m. and 9 a.m., Arahi's Bakery No. 1 is a bit of a shit show. It's packed almost shoulder to shoulder in there with only the suggestion of a line. There'll be 30 people at a time trying to get their breakfast, their coffee, plus there's the constant interruptions from some or other old dude who's come in to hand flowers to one of the women behind the counter. A woman whose stony, pre-dawn expression is thereby cracked, if only for a moment, with a smile. Meanwhile, customers' orders are shouted out and jotted down in no particular order, and everybody under the age of 50 is referred to as muchacho. A lot of people pay for their meal in quarters, and there's a hand-painted sign on the building's exterior declaring that, yes, they do accept food stamps. Arahi's Bakery No. 1 on a weekday morning is a genuine Miami establishment. You need to have been born in the city, and, and probably in a Cuban household, in order to understand, with some strange intuition that resides down between your shoulder blades, the indescribable and unspoken rhythm of how things work here, of how orders are taken and dispatched, the sequencing of service that isn't exactly chronological in the sense of first come, first serve, but is somehow a appreciative of chronology. Arahi's Bakery number 2, a couple blocks down, is much more my pace. It's farther away from Brickell Avenue and appears to have been created for the sole purpose of relieving pressure from Bakery number 1. As somebody whose Spanish can only be described as broken on a good day, I need the slower pace of number 2, where there's never more than five or six customers at a time, the music is turned low, and there's less of a chance of my holding things up. Here, at number two, I can fumble my usual order for desayuno regular with, with scrambled eggs, and the servers tolerate me. And I, I do mean tolerate, because I don't think they, they like me all that much. There's one server in particular who rolls her eyes when I walk in, and she employs all sorts of histrionic pantomiming when taking my order. Like she puts her fingertips to her mouth, and she does this rat-like nibbling gesture while enunciating every syllable of ¿Quieres comida? Despite the hundred mornings that she's taken my exact same order for scrambled eggs, she still routinely brings me fried eggs on maybe every fifth or sixth visit. I think it's because she knows that I don't have a strong enough grip of the language to go up and, and get it replaced, and I'm sure that if I even did try to replace it, she would like pretend not to understand, and then it would be kind of humiliating to sit back down and just kind of eat what they serve me. So the service is sometimes pretty terrible at number two, um, and the servers are conspicuously unhappy, and the mood of the place is a dour one. But the food is authentic and plentiful and cheap, and so I go there fairly often. It's only four blocks away. That desayuno regular with the scrambled eggs and ham and Cuban toast and french fries and a cup of coffee costs you five dollars flat. 
So I'll hit up number two for breakfast now and again, but I don't normally like going there in the afternoons. Partly it's because there's something soul-deadening and purgatorial about how the hyper-sanitized walls and floors look when they're reflecting afternoon sun, but it's mainly because Arahi's Bakery Number 2 becomes a hub for some of the more neurotic of our local homeless, who are for the most part totally harmless, but every now and then there is some agitated dude who's kind of off-putting, kind of unpredictable. I don't know the name of any of the local homeless except for one. Rocky, a tall, wiry, clean-shaven, bald guy, Venezuelan, whose arms and neck are weirdly vascular, and who dresses in denim short shorts and multicolored tank tops to sell bottled water under I-95. I see him on my way to Pasión del Cielo every morning. We do a fist bump, and whenever we're caught together at the intersection's 25-second signal change, he tells me about his family in Chicago, with whom he's still in touch, and how he's led them to believe that he's in a better financial situation than he actually is. Rocky thinks that my name is Aaron, and I've never corrected him, and sometimes, as I'm walking away, he'll call out to me so that I turn, and he'll toss me a wink and blow me a kiss and wave goodbye with waggly fingers. Other than Rocky, though, I only know their faces, and after seeing them from a distance over so many days uh, and in so many moods, you get a vibe for which ones are harmless and which ones are maybe best avoided. And, like I said, every now and then, there's just a new guy. The new guy that I wanted to tell you about today is always wearing a black t-shirt that might have started out as a different color. And he's got black shorts, too, and he wears neon green socks on the outside of his flip-flops. I guess it secures them to his feet a little more like shoes. His hair is black and made stiff with natural oils. One of his eyes has a gray-green milky cataract. He walks with his chest pushed forward and his neck pulled back like a velociraptor. His gait is something between a stagger and a waddle. His arms wave behind him, limp like pendulums. Like a man with no core strength at all, he seems incapable of standing up straight. He doesn't sit down on benches or porch steps so much as smear himself across them. And he's always shouting. Usually anguished sentence fragments about how hungry he is, maybe just fuck as loud as he can. Sometimes it's just a primal scream for three or four seconds, and then back to silence. I don't know where he came from, but one day in April, he turned up in the neighborhood, and ever since then, he's been very much here. And he turns up at Arahi's Bakery number 2 pretty often. He staggers in and goes to the display case full of pastries, and splatters his hand on the glass like Rose and Titanic, and he puts his face real close to it, angling his head so that the good eye can get a better scan of the treats, cupcakes and flan, croquetas. His ass wiggles behind him while he browses. Last time I was there, he came in and ordered American coffee, but Arahi's Bakery Number 2 doesn't serve American coffee. So he shouted his frustration and then asked for a cafe con leche with extra sugar. He ordered a cupcake as well, paid for the whole bit with coins. The women behind the counter avoided eye contact while they rang him up, and they did so in a hurry. When he got his cupcake and his coffee, he sat in a metal chair with his elbows on his knees and his head hung low, and he ate the cupcake in jerky, munching bites, famished. When he was done with it, he drank his coffee in a quick couple gulps, and then, tenderly, he took up the cupcake wrapper with its sticky crumbs and stains of frosting, and he folded it up into a little triangle and tucked it down deep into his pocket for later. And holding the empty styrofoam cup to his ear, he slapped a hand on the table and pushed himself to his feet and staggered back out onto 8th Street. I see this guy and I get a little uneasy, and sometimes I cross the street to avoid him. Because of course he's not well, and he doesn't seem to have a leash on his temper, but he also looks frail and poorly balanced and half-blind. In short, he could be dangerous. He probably isn't, but still, it keeps me on edge. Whenever he stumbles into a restaurant or cafe or drugstore that I'm at, I do get uncomfortable, and I try to avoid him for the aforementioned reason, 
but I also avoid him because, after every encounter with him, I spend the next couple of hours in a gloom of questions. Where are his parents? Were there teachers along the way in his upbringing who cared about him and worried? Is his current state really just a matter of maybe being off his meds? Is it possible that when this dude finds himself in the right care and he's got, you know, a palm full of pills that he can pop at a moment's notice, that he's a fully functioning adult and you would never guess there's anything wrong with him? And then the questions drift to the even darker part of the spectrum. What if he never gets help again? Where will he die and how soon will it happen and how? Will he be run over by some terrified driver after jumping on her car? Will he be shot by a cop? Shot by a drug dealer or a nervous citizen with a permit? Maybe an overdose or something so simple as the flu? I look at this guy who's half blind and screaming and covered in dirt and I wonder if he was ever just a little sleeping thing swaddled tight against his mother's chest in a soft-lit room where the future had yet to swing its axe. If you could go back to that first moment of eye contact between them in the delivery room and show her where her son would end up in 2019, how that left eye will have glossed over and the skin turned brown and rough from the sun, what would she say? But anyway, that's where I got my Cuban sandwich today. I don't normally do it, but I had a load of wash tumbling around in the laundromat a couple blocks down, and I needed to kill 27 minutes. If you go to Arahi's Bakery number 2, don't tell them I sent you, but let me know how it went. I've been watching a YouTube channel called Beyond the Trailer for a few years now, getting mostly immersed back in 2013 when I was fresh out of college and spent a few unemployed months just wandering in the book and movie corners of YouTube. But it's really only now, almost three years into the project, that it's occurred to me to write something up about Grace Randolph, the show's host. Same as I've done about Brady Stanellis and Kevin Smith and Henry Miller and Red Letter Media, figures who I know aren't united by much of anything outside of their affinity for movies and the fact that they built their followings and went on to make good livings by talking a lot. Grace Randolph's show, Beyond the Trailer, appears to have taken its original shape in 2009. I know a lot of YouTubers set their earliest videos to private, so maybe she started sooner than her earliest available video. 
The title is a little outdated at this point, given the scope of what she does, including Monday morning box office reports, movie reviews. If it's a big commercial event, she'll do a second review with spoilers. And then she does videos of just like general pulse keeping of the industry, um, does videos about major deals, trends, whatever. In preparing to write about Grace Randolph, I watched a dozen or so of her most recent videos in quick succession, as opposed to the you know two-at-a-time rate by which I normally consume them, which incidentally also seems to be the rate at which she produces them. And then I dipped a bit into her archive, thinking that maybe, like with the Eric von Stroheim or Kevin Smith pieces, I'd have to cite certain quotes and episodes in order to communicate a point about her. But sitting now on the other side of a marathon of her videos, I realize that it isn't really necessary. Because while Randolph does make incisive remarks about film and, you know, showcases a strong grasp of the mechanics of storytelling, from which I've learned a lot over the years, the value that I glean from her work has, I think, as much to do with her work ethic as with the content that she produces, and with the fact that she seems to me like the perfect example of somebody who's made a profession of their passion. But there's a distinct tone to her work that factors into this. The comparison that comes immediately to mind is Red Letter Media, which is the only other voice in YouTube's movie culture that I follow as closely. The guys at Red Letter Media are comedians as much as they are critics and celebrants of cinema. So they address movies with a tone of authority whenever they're cracking down and getting really critical, and sometimes they even sound professorial. And they're never shy about geeking out, and, and they aren't inherently cynical, but they've got this vibe that sounds like, you know, we've watched this industry for a long time, we love it and we hate it, and we're exhausted and excited by it, now let's talk about it. There's a, there's a jaded, a distinctly jaded kind of love-hate thing. The tone of Beyond the Trailer, however, is, I think, contrasted by the fact that while the Red Letter Media guys wear the hats of critic and comedians, um, Randolph goes back and forth between the roles of critic and journalist. As such, her videos often take this tone of, like, a spectator's glee. In reporting on some controversy or drama in the industry, she'll couch her explanations within historical precedent. She's particularly quick to draw upon the biography of Walt Disney himself, which is an interesting study in light of you know where his empire has gone in the past few years. Or she will she will she'll take a, a what seems like a small concentrated drama uh, in the industry, and she'll illustrate its influence on something tangential. Her past couple years of commenting on the Disney-Fox merger and how one little ripple causes like a tide of repercussions down the line have, I think, shown Randolph at her very best as a reporter. What I'm also so responsive to in Randolph's work is how, like with my affinities for Henry Miller or Kevin Smith, she is unabashedly herself, corralling what Gretchen Rubin, and that the Gretchen Rubin, incidentally, is the first of three self-help gurus I'll be invoking here. She corrals what Gretchen Rubin describes as the courage to, uh, to be openly enthusiastic about something, giving eloquent air to whatever she feels about a movie or an actor or an industry decision, and she rattles it off with such practiced precision and brevity and gigglesome joy that we can see as her channel progresses that there's this shift where she's putting lots of work into her content but it, it doesn't reek of calculation or planning there's just that there's an ob there's an obvious element of improv like it's she's not just reading entirely off of a script so what strike me now is the key ingredients to her channel's effectiveness are uh, sincerity and a kind a kind of dogged consistency that apart from making her just a regular voice on the movie scene um, and and you know prompting her to be versed in everything that's going on it also works as a kind of perpetual practice it's, I think, what Malcolm Gladwell would identify as her 10,000 hours. I don't know why I still cringe to acknowledge that I listen to motivational stuff now and then, um, particularly from Gary Vaynerchuk, who is an entrepreneur and YouTube personality and a podcaster who literally posts like 200 pieces of content per week. 
but I do consume that stuff. I, I consume it in bulk. Vaynerchuk posts a new podcast every single day at 5 a.m. Sometimes the content is recycled, with excerpts from several different episodes getting mixed and matched according to theme. But for the most part, it's new-ish material each day, maybe 5 or 15 or 50 minutes long. It's a freakishly prolific media empire working at the service of a single brand. And yes, Vaynerchuk has a vast team of talented people working around the clock to make sure that this is all happening. But still, he is the, the content all revolves around things that he has said and done, so he's the one who has to keep saying and doing interesting shit, which takes a lot of work. One of the things Vaynerchuk always talks about is the importance of doing something that you love, and, if you want to make a career of it, the importance of doing that thing a lot, especially if we're talking about the production of content around a certain topic. He points out that, you know, for one thing, it's always going to be better to earn less money doing what you love than to earn more money doing what you hate or something that you just feel kind of lukewarm about. But on top of that, he says that if you're doing the thing that you love, you're going to be willing to work harder at it because it isn't going to feel like work. Or if it does feel like work, the, the work is going to feel rewarding. This, I realize, has to be part of the science behind Randolph. Same as it was for Kevin Smith and Henry Miller and all the other workhorses that I've illustrated um, in profiles on the on on the project. They're exactly the kinds of figures that I would look at when I was in high school and college, and I would think that they were lucky. And I would tell myself, like, uh, you know, if I could do what they could do, I would I would kill. It would be awesome. But if only someone would give me the chance, give me my own show, whatever. But I'm only now coming to appreciate that these people were never really handed the kind of quote-unquote opportunity that I'm daydreaming about. They made their own opportunity. They bought their microphone. They started writing on their own. Uh, they bought their own camera. They just started doing the shit that they loved to do, and they did it really hard and really long until people started looking. They braved the risk of looking like fools. They braved the risk of failure, and very often they endured a whole fuck ton of failure before they struck gold. A couple weeks ago, I was listening to the thousandth episode of Mark Maron's What the Fuck podcast. Maron tried to get some special guests for the occasion, but eventually decided to just re record a conversation with the show's one lifelong producer, Brendan McDonald. We learned that Maron and McDonald set themselves the task in the beginning of having two shows a week, Monday and Thursday. The show was fun, and the people involved in it were all friends, but it was also very much a job, and they took it seriously, and they never missed a Monday or a Thursday. They give voice uh, during this thousandth episode to frustrations, and they both choke up at various points, and they laugh a lot. What would happen is they'd have some sort of emotional reaction to something, some memory, and then immediately they would anchor the conversation back down to the topic at hand, which was just the thousandth episode and whatever. To hear them talk on this thousandth episode, you could hear passion underscored by discipline. Even when their voices got frazzled, talking about what a hellish time they'd had packing envelopes full of merch back in the early days of the show, and, you know, when they had to dole out rewards to the listeners who donated, you could hear a smirk beneath the exasperation. It was a love-hate thing. backdrops of Grace Randolph's videos on Beyond the Trailer have gotten progressively nicer as, presumably, she's moving into nicer apartments or offices. And as somebody who's been watching her show since the background was simple, nondescript, and Randolph herself was bringing a more distinct kind of screen persona to the videos, 
I'm finding now that the ease and the consistency and the quality of her work, not to mention her total comfort in front of the camera, presents an arc of somebody who's grown into their craft right in front of us, but also highlights that in order to grow into that craft, she had to spend several years just kind of doing it. McDonald, Mark Maron's producer, revealed in that thousandth episode of What the Fuck that his conception of the show, the guiding light by which he edits each episode, is the idea that every recording is the latest chapter in a story about a character named Mark Maron. Maron himself is not the focus of any given episode, and I can see how the producer would train more attention on what Maron's guests are saying than what the host is saying. But the way that Marin responds to a guest, and how that response informs subsequent episodes, is one more step in the portraiture of this character named Mark Marin. And after a few years of regular viewing, I'm beginning to see something like that character development in Grace Randolph. Of course, I see it in the channels of other YouTubers I enjoy, Kid Behind the Camera, The LA Beast, Boogie2988, and Steve Donahue, among others. But what's interesting with Grace Randolph, as with the Mark Marin podcast, is that the screen character, insofar as any screen persona is a construct, is not the focus of her own channel. The protagonist is not the subject. The center is not the center. It's not a question of authenticity that's got me so hooked, though. I think it's this. Having consumed these creators' content almost daily over the course of several years now, during which time I've become an increasingly committed content creator in my own right, I've felt my relation to these figures shift from the perspective of a viewer to that of a colleague, which is, I know, presumptuous and self-aggrandizing, but this shift has alerted me to the behind-the-scenes rigors of those channels and what those creators put up with. There's a flashback vibe where, like, I'm realizing that the content I consumed so passively, if habitually, uh, back then was the livelihood of these creators whose ranks I'm now trying to achieve, albeit on different platforms, blogging and podcasting. So I've been looking lately in a new way at these people whose work I've been enjoying for so long, and now my prevailing attitude is more like respect and curiosity and a mindfulness about everything that these people are probably sacrificing in order to be where they are in our news feeds. My effort to provide daily content on the blog and at least five podcasts each month has made me realize how much discipline these sorts of vocations demand if you want to make a living of them. Randolph is a perfect blend of what I'm hoping to achieve here ecstatic and obsessive passion that, with time and discipline, assumes a consistent and dependable shape, a sort of order, a voice. I just need to figure out how the fuck she does it. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and to read our blog posts every day at www.thousandmovieproject.com. And remember, while you're at it, to have a nice day.